The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome, everybody. This is Squawk Box in your headlines this hour. Chaos on Capitol Hill. Trump supporters storm Congress, disrupting a debate to certify Joe Biden's election victory, forcing a mass evacuation. Politicians from both sides of the aisle have condemned the violence. A shameful assault was made on our democracy. It cannot, however, deter us from our responsibility to validate the election. To those who wreaked havoc in our capital today, you did not win. Violence never wins. Freedom wins. Well, Congress was reconvened hours after those violent riots, but not before one woman was shot and has subsequently died. Three others have died in what has been described as medical emergencies. The Democrats have meanwhile taken control of the Senate as NBC projects John Ossoff as the winner of the second of Georgia's two runoff elections. And Alibaba and Tencent shares plunging in Hong Kong on reports US is considering adding them to a China blacklist. Plus, uh, Telco's also in trouble as the NYSE performs another U-turn on delisting plans. Europe gets a boost. Moderna's COVID jab becomes the second to be authorised by the EU, with the bloc ordering 160 million doses and set to begin rolling them out as soon as next week. A very good morning, everybody. Let's bring you up to speed uh, with, with the latest on this story. Protesters backing President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol, leading Congress, uh, congressional members to halt the process of certifying the results of the November election. Uh, they were forced then to evacuate the building. Officials in Washington say that they have now secured the complex at least four people died on Capitol grounds, one from a gunshot wound after an officer opened fire. Congress has reconvened after Wednesday's chaos to resume the counting of Electoral College votes and to confirm President-elect Joe Biden's win. A Republican objection to the results in Arizona failed, where six GOP senators voted against Biden's victory in the state. Further Republican challenges to the results in Nevada, Pennsylvania and Michigan have also been rejected. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he does not expect any more votes today challenging the election results. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle have spoken out against the riots. The US Vice President Mike Pence condemned protesters for wreaking havoc in the Capitol building. Today was a dark day in the history of the United States Capitol. But thanks to the swift efforts of U.S. Capitol Police, federal, state, and local law enforcement, the violence was quelled. The Capitol is secured, and the people's work continues. Mike Pence, NBC's Alice Barr joins us now from Washington. Alice, just bring us up to date with the latest in the Capitol.
Yeah, so you hit on this. Uh, it, it really is a, a difference after you would expect, but certainly it is a difference after the chaos that we saw inside the Capitol earlier this afternoon. Going into today, there was a fairly sizable group of more than a dozen uh, GOP Republican senators who were planning to object to the electoral count vote in several different battleground states. And then there were more than 100 House members planning to sign on to that. Uh, since what happened this afternoon, um, a number of those states have already come up. Uh, Georgia and Michigan, Nevada, you mentioned this, there, there was an objection raised from a House member. But the senators that were expected to back that and, and push forward those objections and lead to more debate, they did not materialize. Uh, that's a pretty strong signal that there was a, a, a will inside the Senate to try to move this along and to move toward the transition of power, which is where this is ultimately going. And what happened today puts in such sharp relief the true danger of continuing to ignore the reality of the situation that president-elect Joe Biden will be president in two weeks from today and that the, the more uh, this sort of delusional theater continues, um, the more damaging it is. Now, that said, uh, the, the objections were shut down in those several states. But in Pennsylvania, there was a senator who was willing to sign on to objections, uh, claiming that there was something wrong with the way that the vote was carried out in Pennsylvania, even though that has been that count has been recounted. Those issues have been litigated and rejected. So that did lead to um, two hours of debate. The Senate has already shut it down. They, in fact, did not debate. They just said, you know, they voted down that objection, but the House is still going, the other chamber. Uh, they're still debating this and, um, you know, still raising some of these frequently debunked uh, conspiracy theories. So as you mentioned, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said he does not expect to see any more objections uh, to any of the states throughout the rest of the night. And that is not how this was going to go prior to the chaos in the Capitol earlier today. So perhaps you can look to that as a silver lining that there are more in Congress uh, who want to move forward and put this ugly chapter behind us. Alice, I could ask you 100 questions, but, but one centers around the actions of the president and the vice president uh, this evening as well. I understand from reports that it was the vice president, Mr. Pence, and not the president, Mr. Trump, who actually finally brought in the National Guard to protect uh, the Capitol premises as well. With that in mind, I'm also hearing reports, and I'd love to get your input on this as well, that there are discussions going on amongst cabinet to use the 25th Amendment and actually uh, install the vice president uh, as leader of the country until the inauguration. Do you have anything to add to that? That is reporting that we are hearing sources telling NBC News that those discussions are ongoing. However, a few cabinet members have been approached about that throughout the evening and have not confirmed it on the record, have not been willing to say that that's something that they're considering. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence has been a very loyal second in command to President Trump really up until this week, this week when we are just two weeks away from the uh, tr the Pence uh, and the Trump-Pence administration becoming the former Trump-Pence administration. Uh, and it really, this break came because President Trump wanted Vice President Mike Pence to sort of invent powers that he does not have under the Constitution to try to intervene tonight and to deliver him a second term. So uh, Vice President Pence did break with the president and made it clear today telling Congress members that he was just going to follow his constitutional duty. 
that said, I, I don't think we should, you know, leap forward to say that because Vice President Pence was willing to do that, that he would be willing to, you know, get involved in, in the 25th Amendment and, and seizing power um, from President Trump. Again, certainly something that we're hearing a lot of discussion about tonight, but nothing uh, firm or on the record at this point. Thanks, Alice. And of course, we don't know what the president thinks because he's been, uh, well, his oxygen's been taken away because of those banned temporary or what on social media. So thank you very much, as ever, Alice, for your brilliant coverage out of DC. Uh, let's take a look at the US futures. And um, well, they are calm and they are rallying. And uh, as you would expect, with Wall Street these days, uh, political events don't seem to rattle the fact that there is one direction that uh, the traders want to send these stocks, and that is north, Jeff. No, um, let's bring in, let's, um, I, I feel we need a big chat about this. So let's bring in Aaron uh, Pillai-Essex, uh, Senior North America Analyst at Verisk Maplecroft. Aaron, nice to have you with us this morning. Um, calm has been restored to the capital. Uh, as we reflect, though, on what has happened over recent hours and perhaps the failure of the security services and the actions of the president, how important do you think this event is going to be in shaping what takes place post the inauguration in the United States? Sure, I think we can look at the event as basically either presaging or foretelling a period of heightened tension in the United States or maybe even political instability? Or is it really an inflection point? Are political actors going to look at this and say, if I'm sort of currying electoral incentive, gaining electoral currency from this sort of anti-Washington politics, is it really in the country's interest? So some of the speeches that we've seen on the House and Senate floor would suggest perhaps the latter. But it doesn't seem to be really more than any kind of an immediate short-term comedy and bipartisanship. I think this kind of period of real kind of political polarization and really societal polarization is not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, President-elect very early on started to talk about um, uniting the, the two extremes of political views in the United States. Um, obviously, a lot of that has fallen on deaf ears, given what we have seen transpire. Um, let me ask you, if, if the security services uh, enforce a significant crackdown now on those who are perceived to be a risk, and um, I guess there are a lot of those who would self-identify as dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporters who buy into the idea that this was a rigged election. Uh, do you think that damages the prospects of bringing that kind of unity across the states in the first year of the new presidential term? I think clearly when you have large segments of the electorate viewing the poll, the November poll, as being illegitimate, it almost sort of makes it very difficult for a Biden administration to sort of build a broad-based coalition to enact its agenda, particularly because those electoral representatives have every incentive to sort of be rejectionist and to not kind of work across the aisle or, or to sort of find a consensus on some of the major reform agenda items that this administration is likely to pursue. With regards to any kind of military action or, or sort of you know national security intervention, that doesn't seem to be a, a, a large risk at all. It just It's important to remember that 76 million people did vote for the president. There is large numbers of supporters there. The Republican Party did quite well in the election despite uh, Biden winning. And so that part of the country is really a, a, a substantive force in, in politics. 
Aaron, I want to talk about the Republican Party because before most recent events, it seemed that again, going into the midterms and beyond, President Trump would be the key force within the Republican Party. There was by there was polarization way before Mr. Trump, and that will contain that will carry on afterwards. But in terms of this, the soul of the Republican Party, will re moderate Republicans take it back from Trump and Trumpites, or will Trump still be the dominant force in the Republican Party? I think that's going to be an interesting question, and I think the short answer is that, yes, he will remain a, a significant force in the party, and a lot of his kind of heterodox views on on fiscal stimulus and on entitlement, expanding the entitlements, and sort of going against some of the traditional GOP pillars of the governing philosophy that we saw under Speaker Paul Ryan and, you know, what Mitt Romney ran uh, on in 2012, a lot of that type of politics and, and campaign issues of sort of subsided there's kind of a new heterodox view of of kind of looking at these major pillars of the party and saying well maybe this isn't really working for us i mean you saw that in the in the debate around the two thousand dollar stimulus checks which where the president was bucking many members of his own party and supporting a more substantive uh intervention there so yes trump trump politics the pugilism the pugilism that will probably stay uh in the landscape, but the more heterodox views on economics and economic intervention and taking on China, a lot of that has real lasting power. And I want to ask you about that because it feels as though there might be a bigger picture here. When there's a civil unrest at home, uh, typically there is a, a common enemy often presented to, to populations. And I wonder in this context, uh, with an incoming Biden administration, what that means for other outside actors from the likes of Russia to the Middle East to, to China to North Korea. How do you think the administration will weigh up some of these outside forces and, and pitch that to the American people as they try and sow some harmony domestically? Sure. I mean, Biden campaigned very significantly on this notion of restoring American leadership uh, abroad and in foreign theaters and kind of assuaging uh, those concerns of allies and really kind of bringing America, quote, back and really restoring the traditional role of the country. And he sort of viewed that as being appealing to Americans, but also, of course, appealing to the rest of the world. But images that we saw today uh, really kind of go against this, this, this idea of uh, having the, you know, when the country's house is not in order, it's very difficult to project this notion of leadership abroad. So clearly adversaries and allies alike will be looking at the events and kind of really scratching their head and saying, well, really, what we'll be seeing out of this government over the next one or two years when the country is so perceived to be so unstable. I want to ask you about business and market ramifications then, because many months ago, as we were counting down to the US election, one of the, the high risks for markets was that there was not going to be a smooth transition. As we watch these uh, fairly disturbing pictures across the airwaves, it is in context where we've seen protests on the ground in recent months around Black Lives Matter. There's been you know, lots of different points of tension across the country. At what point do markets and business in terms of business investment start to, to unravel because you do have these events unfolding uh, also at the same time when there's a pandemic. So how do you put that into perspective as to, to when there is a moment where you see a reaction? But, no, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's interesting to note that the capital markets, even through some of the unrest over the summer and, and these events today, they're kind of really taking it in stride almost. There almost seems to be a disallocation between what's going on in the kind of political landscape and some of the social stuff and civil unrest, obviously, and really what's happening in the markets. And I don't really see that almost changing. The, the business investment landscape, that doesn't seem to be impacted by the kind of 
political instability, there almost seems to be this sort of divergent view of things, whether or not there's a, a major inflection point in which the government is seen to be un, incapable of, of functioning, whether or not that has an impact, sure, that, that could, could be a, a possibility, but it still seems to really go on this two-tracked, uh, really, approach at the moment. Aaron, in any normal world, we wouldn't be talking about what is a rubber stamping exercise of the certification uh, of the results, but we'd be talking about John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock's stunning victories in Georgia. So a question one might have asked when Mr. Obama was elected in 2008-2009 was, uh, are we seeing a huge demographic shift in parts of the country that means actually Democrats are winning areas that they couldn't win? Obviously, events have proved that that just isn't the case necessarily. But I'm asking you the same question now that I might have asked uh, before the inauguration in 2009. Are we seeing a demographic shift in parts of the country that means that the US population uh, is moving in a certain direction? I think we're seeing a rural-urban cleavage in American politics. I mean, for instance, the 100 most populous counties in the United States, Trump lost 96 of those. So basically, Democrats are winning the urban centers, they're winning increasingly the suburban ring around those urban centers, and absolutely getting destroyed in the sort of exurban and rural communities. And in the Georgia races, you saw that the counties that basically swung the election towards the Democrats were in the Atlanta region and in counties just adjacent to the big cities. So basically, that trend is, is, isn't going anywhere. So whilst that's a positive thing, if, if for Democrats in a lot of respects, putting states like North Carolina and Georgia in play in the sort of traditional South, at the same time, the Senate, for instance, the upper chamber and the legislative branch is very much skewed towards rural interests. So how do you build a, a large legislative block when one of the chambers will disproportionately represent rural states? So they cannot really afford to be losing the rural areas of the clip that they are. So whether or not it's demographic change, I think it's more a rural urban cleavage than anything specifically demographic. Aaron, we at the moment are largely looking at these events through the prism of domestic politics in the United States. But obviously the rest of the world is looking on as well and trying to figure out whether there are any implications for America's external relationships. Uh, and we saw a lot of Europeans and other world leaders uh, getting on board um, with messages about how America's democracy must be protected. If you look at the potential impact on relationships with other countries at this stage, do you see anything meaningful? Is this going to uh, nudge the dial forward on Biden and Beijing? Does it mean anything for the relationship with Europe? I think on the US-China issue, that's really one of the few areas of bipartisanship that really exists in Washington, D.C. at the moment that sort of unites the right, center, and left of the landscape. So there won't be really much change or impact there. But I guess the the real issue in, in terms of policy as well, but the real issue I think is more the, the sort of veering back and forth uh, between a candidate or, or a president like Trump to a president like Biden, what is the next president going to look like? What are their policies? Are, are they going to sharply diverge uh, in a different direction from what we're going to see over the next four years? So can you really take the word of, of the executive branch in the United States when the two parties are representing such divergent views and each, and each party has such a great chance of winning the White House? Does that make it hard to make long-term policy or, or to sort of build bridges with with adversaries and, and, and strike deals there. So that's where what I see as kind of one of the risks of this sort of broken or, or, or politically polarized landscape is sort of what can you really see as a long-term 
thing that goes through both parties that will outlast one administration to the next. Aaron, thank you for your uh, insights this morning. Uh, Aaron Pillai, Essex, a senior North American uh, analyst at uh, Verisk Maplecroft. Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time on this story this morning uh, and walk you through also the potential implications of the Georgia Senate wins. Let's have a quick look at the uh, US futures here and see what the early sentiment looks like. And we are pooling around the idea of uh, relatively strong gains at the start of the US trading session. We sat here 24 hours ago and looked at uh, early calls on the US markets that were very negative. By the time we got to the open, a lot of the sentiment had improved. Uh, it faded late in the session on news coming through from Washington. But here we have markets poised for a strong open to the start of the US trading session. We're going to take the break. We'll be back in a moment. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. You're watching Squawk Box. Um, let's just give you uh, some more pictures uh, from Washington. This is the uh, reconvened session uh, in the House of Representatives. Um, obviously, we had hours of chaos and very ugly scenes earlier. Uh, many dimensions to this story with uh, accusations now uh, towards the president about incitement and about a Twitter video. Uh, his account has now been suspended. Um, the actions also seem to have uh, softened the resolve of some of the Republicans who were intending uh, to, to challenge the, uh, the process ultimately ongoing here, effectively to ratify the election win by Joe Biden. Uh, so we will continue to monitor these scenes, obviously, uh, late at night now in Washington. And Karen, quite a lot of reaction around the world to uh, what we saw on Capitol Hill. Yes, uh, let me just bring you some of that. As we saw the scenes on Capitol Hill sparking widespread condemnation from global leaders with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying it is vital that the US have a peaceful and orderly transition of power. European Council President Charles Michel described the US Congress as a temple of democracy, adding that the riots in Washington were a shock. Corporate leaders have also hit out of the chaos in D.C. with both J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon and Goldman Sachs boss David Solomon saying it is time for America to come together. The CEOs of tech giants Alphabet and Apple also condemned the violence, with Tim Cook saying the transition of power to the Biden administration must be completed. Steve. Thanks very much, Karen. Look, I learned a long time ago to not expect a knee-jerk reaction from markets to geopolitical events and, and, and a huge 
events that we've seen, for instance, in the last 24 hours, and we're not getting one on the markets as well. Let's have a look at what the US markets did last night as well. That tells a lot of the story, and in a few moments' time after the break, we'll tell you the rest of the story. But safe to say, there was an enormous rotation going on, as you can see from the right-hand side of the screen, out of the NASDAQ into um, materials, energy. Energy had a, a phenomenal day yesterday. You saw the Russell 2K, the Dow Transports, rallying extraordinarily. In fact, 4 and 3% respectively as well. So there was a lot of rotation going on, a lot of rotation to European stocks as well. We'll come to that a little bit later on. Safe to say the FTSE had a quite phenomenal day to the upside if you were long. Let's have a look at the Treasuries as well. Well, the knee-jerk away from some of that ebullience was actually a sell-off in the Treasuries. And I'll draw your attention to that yield on the 10-year, which is hitting levels we haven't seen since the early part of last year, March 2020, 1.05% the yield on the 10-year. It's not much. It's about 1.9% uh, at its high uh, of 2020. But as you can see, tip, um, tipping above 1% as well. Moving on to dollar crosses, the uh, dollar index remains under pressure. Hit in session, 89.2 in the last 24 hours. That is the lowest also we've seen uh, since March 2018, I believe, as well. But at the moment, euro 123.17. The pound hasn't had, just for you pound Brexit watchers, hasn't had the enormous blip up that some people would have expected on the back of the Brexit transition period, trade deal being agreed as well. But it is trading at 136. A lot of people forecast that we would see 140 handle uh, on the back of events of the last week or so. Dolly on 6.45. Let's have a look at the Asian indices as well and where they are currently trading as well. Um, negativity across the board, apart from the Nikkei. Nikkei's been on the back foot for a lot of these recent sessions, but is now at 1.6%, 27,500. And Karen and Jeff, my, my, my comment it pretty much stays the same. Do not expect a market reaction to events we're seeing on Capitol Hill. The market has a, an ability to say, okay, this is extraordinary. It's historical events and hopefully never to be repeated. But the fact of the matter is the market's going, OK, will this change the inauguration? Will it change uh, the Biden presidency as well? And actually, the story we've barely spoken about, which is the stunning longer term story, of course, is the Ossoff Warnock victories. Those are the events that will actually potentially move the market and, of course, have ramifications for the market in the medium to long term. Not what we're seeing on Capitol Hill and those extraordinary events of the last 24 hours. Jeff. Yeah, let me just uh, pick up on that because I think um, you m make some terrific points. I'll, I'll just throw on top that I think there's um, a, a very interesting moment here for investors to have a think about some of the choppy trends that are beginning to emerge. So obviously the, the, the Georgia wins now begin to solidify the idea that President Biden will ultimately be able to carry through some of the pre-election uh, promises and some of those suggestions about how we might see um, uh, changes to the American economy going forward. So uh, very notable that you saw that technology sell down where I think people now are beginning to try and price in the idea of more regulation in the, t in the technology space. Again, the energy story, that idea that uh, Joe Biden is going to turn America back towards the Paris climate goals and that we will see more emphasis on greening of the economy and then more broadly, I think there's the general idea that there will be more fiscal response going forward. And we got the uh, 
the Fed minutes overnight, which just reconfirmed the idea that we are going to see more economic weakness. That's what the Federal Reserve is anticipating here. But perhaps now that we see um, the Democrats in the driving seat politically over the next four years, the Fed is going to have to do less work because it means maybe the, uh, uh, the Democrats are going to be able to get more stimulus passed, which, again, we're already starting to see reflected in the way the bond market is dealing with that idea with that 10-year yield through 1%. So I suspect there are a lot of doors here that are just starting to open on various asset classes that are probably going to get pushed open a little further as the market begins to consolidate the idea that the Democrats are in charge on a lot of these policy areas, Karen. Somewhat of a predictable uh, trade on markets, uh, in, in my view. We were talking about this yesterday as we saw the politics unfold around this runoff uh, in Georgia. The market moved very aggressively on the yield side. Uh, talk that we're now in this new range for the US 10 year, uh, 1 to about 1.2% potentially. And that triggered, of course, the moves in financials, which we saw even before the market had begun trading on Wall Street. We expected that that would be the, play, the, the case. Uh, financials around a, a one year high, materials, industrials, energy sectors, all the cyclical starting to move. And it's funny, as the market can see its way through a pandemic focused on vaccines, naturally a market can see its way through the events that we saw in Washington despite disturbing images. The market could very much see its way through that. Uh, so very long-term view is what we're now seeing priced into a lot of these trades across the board. And of course, that extended to emerging markets. We've heard a lot of that recently where investors are chasing growth corridors again, that hunt for yield, the chasing of superior returns. That has meant not just the cyclical quarters of the US, but also emerging markets. And to me, it was very clockwork what we've seen in the last 24 hours. Nothing around the, the events uh, in Washington is going to really tip that story at this stage. So I think it's, uh, in some ways, the market has got a window to trade some of these areas and put their positions around it. The big question mark, though, for me is around technology and not just because I cover tech, but uh, what you've seen around this increased regulation derailing the trade for the Nasdaq. Keep in mind, these are very large components of broader stock markets at this point. So if you do see a story where there's an undermining of that technology story as some of the gains we've witnessed, what does it mean for the broader market? But just to, to complete the picture for you, I think what you're seeing, huge transactions to yesterday on Wall Street, that's another good story for the banking stocks as they, they pick up some of that business on the trading portfolio. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.